Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. And my name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Uh, Really grateful for all of you who are joining us online. You can be with us today as well. Uh, As we get started this morning, I just have a question for you. I'm curious if any of you know, uh, what's Jesus doing now? Like right now? Uh, What's he up to? Do you know? For real, what's he doing? In this moment, in this instant, what's he up to? You know, a lot of times when we think of Jesus' work, we we think of it kind of in this way. We think of it linearly, right? Like all the things that he's done. His birth, his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven. We think of that, but okay, so what about now though? Now that he's ascended and he's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, what's he up to? I mean, I wonder, is, uh, did he just retire? Did Jesus just retire? You know, did he move to Florida, take up golf, and he's sipping on a pina colada just waiting for his glorious return? What is he up to right now? I don't think that's it. But what's he doing? Is he resting? Is he, is he napping? Is he waiting patiently? Is, is he bored, just kind of twiddling his thumbs, just waiting for that day to come back? Well, do you know the Bible tells us what he's up to? It tells us exactly what he's doing right now. And uh, the thing that he's doing right now is he's interceding. Uh, after his ascension, his primary work became intercession. He's, he's interceding for you. Look at, look at Romans chapter eight. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Okay, so, so what's the answer to our question? What's he doing? who's interceding for us. Friend, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's interceding for you. And the writer of Hebrews tells us even more. He he says this, this makes Jesus a a guarantee of a better covenant. See, the, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. See, they would, they would serve. And then because of their sinfulness, they would die. And so, uh, they only served for a time, but, but not Jesus. Look at this. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. Consequently, then, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, near to God through him, excuse me, since he is always, he, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, that's some good news. Jesus saves to the uttermost, and he lives to make intercession for us as we draw near to God through him. So with that, let me pray, and we're gonna unpack this truth today and uh, in the book of Hebrews, a little bit in 1 John, and uh, I think it'll be an encouragement to your heart. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, <clears throat> excuse me, for his work in the past on the cross, his perfect life, his his death on the cross for my sin, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And thank you too that even in this moment, he's interceding for me, for us. He's, he's praying, he's advocating, uh, all because of his heart toward us and his love for us. 
Father, uh, I pray that you would uh, work through me today by the power of your spirit. Even as I teach your word, would you teach me? Let my words be your own. And might we leave uh, changed, encouraged, just in awe of, of your love and your work on our behalf. Thanks for Jesus. He's our only hope. And we pray all this through him. Amen. Well, as we read there in Hebrews chapter seven, Jesus saves to the uttermost. Uh, to the uttermost. What do we mean by that? Did you see it again? Let me show you again. Consequently, he is able, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. What, what are we talking about? You know, uh, for a lot of us, we tend to think like that, that linear way, like I mentioned earlier, you know, we think of our functional Jesus as kind of distant and uh, maybe not doing much and kind of seated at the right hand of the Father and we're not quite sure what he's up to. Um, you know, maybe he's just kind of got his arms folded and he's looking at us going, are you ever gonna figure it out? Uh, you know? But the Bible tells us something much different that he's actually interceding for us. But before we really have... Um, maybe a good grasp and appreciation for his intercession on our behalf, it might be good just to review what Jesus has accomplished already for us in the past. Um, and one of those things would be justification. And as it relates to our justification, I'm throwing out some big theological words at you today, but as it relates to our justification, it absolutely has been totally, fully, completely accomplished. See, if you've trusted Jesus and have been justified by his work on the cross for you, there's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can take away from it. It is absolutely, completely finished. There's nothing for you to do, uh, completely. Oh, well, let's just review exactly what Jesus did accomplish for us on the cross. You with me? We're just gonna dive in here and think a little bit theologically about what the Bible teaches about Jesus' work for us on the cross. Well, the first thing that Jesus' death, burial, resurrection accomplish is uh, the atonement. In other words, he, he satisfies God's wrath for sin. See, as a sinner, I deserve God's wrath for sin. And my sin has caused a separation between me and God. But you might think of the atonement as, uh, if you broke it out, at one mint. That because Jesus satisfies God's wrath for sin, I can be at one with the Father. I can be at one with my creator. Because Jesus satisfies God's wrath. It doesn't fall on me, it lands on him on the cross. And then what happens in response to that, because his wrath is satisfied, uh, justification happens. And what justification is, is it's the Father declaring me, and you if you've trusted Christ, declaring you to be righteous. You know, when I was a kid, I was often taught justification is God looks at me and it's just as if I'd never sinned. And that's true. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it because what's actually with that is that God declares me righteous. He gives me, uh, he imputes onto me Jesus' very righteousness. So that now when the Father sees me, not only does he see me just as if I never sinned, he sees me as his own child, as his own son. He sees me veiled in Jesus Christ. Do you see? That's justification, and it's the Father who declares it because of the work of Jesus. 
And then at the same time that justification is happening, all of this, Jesus redeems us. He sets us free from sin. He sets us free. And then the Holy Spirit has some work to do. And what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit works on us even before we've made a conscious decision to trust the Lord. And he works in our hearts and enables us. He helps us to believe. Now, I just have a question. As you look at this triangle and kind of make your way around it, thinking of the work of Jesus on the cross, how many things did you do? Who's done all the work? God has. Jesus satisfied God's wrath. The, the Father declared us righteous. Jesus redeemed us and set us free. And, and my, only, my only work is belief. And I think I could make a, an argument to you from scripture that the Holy Spirit helps us in our belief. So he's working in that too, that we would have faith. He does it all. He does it all. That's what Jesus has accomplished and he's done it completely in Romans 5, if you want to read about this in the Bible, just read Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 starts out, it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith in Jesus, it goes on and basically says, then, so therefore we have the peace of God because we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That, that's our only response is, is faith. Now that ends up working itself out in how we live our life, Right? But in terms of what's been accomplished on the cross for us, it's complete, it's done, it's finished, and Jesus did it all. I had nothing to do with it. And so friend, here's what this means. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been saved from God's wrath. You've been saved. That's when we say, have you been saved? That's what we mean, saved from his wrath that I deserve. Not only that, but you've been declared righteous. When God looks at you, he sees you no longer as a sinner or as his enemy, but as his child. He sees you with the righteousness of Jesus accredited and applied to your life. That's incredible. He declares it. You didn't do anything to earn it. He decided it. Jesus earned it. And then Jesus actually works in your life in such a way that he sets you free from sin and he redeems you. He draws you near to him. Do you see? All of this is Jesus' completed work for you and for me. And there's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can do to ruin it. It's complete. You've been declared righteous in the sight of God if you've trusted Jesus, fully, legally exonerated in that divine court based entirely on what another, namely Jesus, has done for you and for me. But I wonder, does your heart have a tendency to struggle to really believe that in the way you live your life? I mean, do you ever find yourself trying to add something to it? Like, oh, uh, I think he's, yeah, I believe this, Josh, but I think he's probably still pretty mad at me. And I can't really go to him in prayer until I get some things cleaned up in my life. Or, uh, if you even study theology in church history, you'd go back like into the medieval days and you would, you would read to where it's, it's codified in. Like there, there were other things for you to do in addition to really receive God's forgiveness. And even in Roman Catholic theology, that's present today. But the reality is that 
See, see we, all, we all know, we, we think we need to get our act together before God, before he'll declare us to be right, but the reality is, it's just the opposite that's true. You're only declared righteous, you're only redeemed and set free, not when you get your act together, but when you humbly acknowledge that you never can, and you never will on your own. And then Jesus redeems you and he changes you and he works in your life. He gives you a new identity and now you begin to live those things out. It's a response to that work in no way to earn it. So we desperately need Jesus to to justify us, to acquit us, to redeem us because we always find at every turn our own efforts are always lacking and it's never enough. So that's what Jesus has accomplished for us, right? If you've trusted him. If you haven't trusted him, I encourage you to do so. And all that would be applied to your life. But today specifically, I said, we're gonna talk about another work of Jesus, his intercession. Because that's what he did, but what's he doing now? Well, again, we don't have to speculate. The Bible tells us he's interceding for us. Friend, if you've trusted Jesus, he is interceding for you in this moment. If justification is what Christ did in the past, intercession is what he's doing in the present. If justification is his completed work, intercession is his continual work. His continual work. Jesus is continually interceding for me and for you if you've trusted him. In fact, he always lives to make intercession He's not sitting, sitting around in heaven twiddling his thumbs. He's not sitting back uh, with a, giving us the side eye, wondering, are you really gonna get it together this time? No, he, he's interceding for you. He's, he, he loves you. Uh, you know, we've uh, based much of this series on insights from this book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And if you're here next Sunday, you'll be able to get a copy of this for free and we'd love to give you one. Uh, but let me read, you, read to you a little bit of what he writes on this truth. He says, think of it this way. Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but now it's dissipated since he's in heaven. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but then cooled down afterwards, settling back once more into kindly indifference. No, his heart is as drawn to his people now as it ever was in his incarnate state. And the present manifestation of his heart for his people is his constant interceding on their behalf. Friends, uh, Jesus doesn't just save us and set us free and send us on our way. He doesn't, you know, just kind of stand back with his arms crossed, uh, wondering what we're gonna do now. You know, like, like a parent who just kicks their kid out at 18 and says, good luck, I did my part. Jesus doesn't do that. He's, he's so interested in what's going on in your life today. So much so in your, your, your moments of victory and even in your moments of weakness. In fact, you could make an argument that in your moments of weakness, his heart is drawn out even all the more to you to intercede for you because he loves you and he wants you free from that, right? Friend, he's interceding for you. He loves you. He hasn't left you on 
your own. And you know, he can save us then to the uttermost, we read. To the uttermost. Which is really good news. You know why? Because we sin to the uttermost. (laughs) So we need a savior who can save us to the uttermost completely. And Jesus does this by interceding on our behalf. I've used that word a lot today, haven't I already? But what's it mean? Are you wondering? You might be. And if you are, let me help you understand here. In in general terms, intercession just means that a third party comes between uh, two other parties and brings them together. He intercedes on behalf of one to the other, makes a case on behalf of one to the other. You know, think of a parent interceding with a teacher on behalf of their child, or uh, maybe uh, an agent interceding for an athlete to the sports franchise that they, uh, the team that they're on. That's what Jesus is doing. He's interceding. And in the case of Christ, he's interceding between us and the Father. And he's interceding. He's uh, representing us to him and bringing us together, right? His atonement and and, uh, our justification then in his redemption, he's drawing us near to the Father. He's interceding. But have you wondered, uh, why would Jesus need to intercede for us? I mean, uh, haven't we already been fully and completely justified? I mean, I just made the case earlier, didn't I? had the big triangle and we were going around it. And I, was, I said, like, all that is completely finished. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. But Josh, it sounds like you're saying there's something else here that Jesus had to do, that maybe when he said, it's finished, it wasn't really finished. Is that what the Bible would teach us? No, 100% no. It is completely finished and it's done. And so... Here's what's going on in intercession then. Intercession is applying to our lives moment by moment uh, what the atonement accomplished for us. What Jesus accomplished for us, he's applying to our lives moment by moment through his intercession. The, the, The atonement accomplished our salvation, intercession applies it to our life. And you know, uh, all of this, we're gonna see Jesus as an intercessor here, but really to understand this, it's good to know that this was all foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And that some of the metaphors here that we're gonna see in Hebrews uh, actually come from the Old Testament. You know, a lot of times we spend so much time in the New Testament not recognizing uh, that, uh, let's see here, all of this is the Old Testament. It's a major part of God's word. And uh, in the Old Testament, God was always engaging his people. And one of the things he was doing is he was engaging them, reminding them of a promise he had made. And that promise specifically, this covenant he made was he said uh, to his people, he said, I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people, and I'm gonna dwell in your midst. I'm gonna be with you forever. Now, ultimately, that points forward to the work of Jesus and his return where we're with him forever. But he didn't wait until then to be among his people. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, we see uh, 
God command his people to create something called the tabernacle. Have you heard of this? The tabernacle, do you know that word tabernacle? It simply means tent or dwelling, or sometimes tent of dwelling, tent of meeting. Can't talk this morning. Uh, that's, what, that's what the tabernacle is. It's, it's a tent. It's a big tent that was set up in the desert as God was rescuing his people out of the hands of Pharaoh and they're on their way to the land that God had promised to their ancestor Abraham, the promised land. And on the way, God says, Here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to know I'm among you. And so you're gonna make this tent and it's always gonna be in the very center of camp. It was always in the very middle of his people. And at this place, I'm going to dwell. My presence will be made manifest in this place. And uh, to do so, he actually appointed then a group of people called priests who would, uh, well, they would intercede and mediate between the people and the holy God. See, I don't know if you've thought about it yet or not, but there's a little bit of a problem with a perfect holy God just coming and dwelling in the middle of a whole bunch of sinful people. That's not gonna end well for the people. (laughs) And so God creates a way though for them to be with him and for him to be among them. And it was through sacrifice. And so the priests would mediate between the people and him. And again, all of this points forward to Jesus. Keep this in mind, right? And so the, the priests would mediate. They would offer sacrifices for sin. And it showed vividly to everyone how serious God took their sin. That it required blood to be shed. It required death to make up for that sin. And then also, though, the priests would offer prayers for the people to God, and they would lead praise to God on behalf of the people. And in doing these things, then the priests uh, sanctified God's people so that uh, they were acceptable to come into God's presence, even if only in a limited way during that Old Testament period. Well, all of that work of the priests uh, took place here at the tabernacle. And there's kind of a handful of components to the tabernacle. Primarily you have this kind of outer court. And then uh, right here, this is what you would really refer to as the actual tabernacle, this tent. In fact, let me just zoom in to give you a little better look. Uh, In in the tent, uh, there was one place right here that was called the holy place. And then behind a curtain, once you got inside, a curtain that was pretty similar to the one one entrance in back there, uh, was the most holy place. And the only people who were allowed uh, to come into the holy place were the priests. And only after they had cleansed themselves. And then in terms of the most holy place where where God's presence was, uh, only the high priest could enter into that place and only once a year. And all of that happened on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Have you heard of that? On the Day of Atonement, let me uh, just give you a brief overview of what happened on that day because it was a really clear picture to the people of of God's heart for them and ultimately what Jesus would do. So uh, first, the priest, because the high priest, because he was sinful, he had to make atonement for his own sin, right? So he would sacrifice a bull. But then after that, uh, after he had made atonement for his own sin, he would come and they would select two goats or two sheep, two lambs from all the people and uh, two perfect lambs. 
And he would take them and at the front of the tent of meeting, uh, he would uh, place his hands, well, first he'd cast lots to determine uh, which goat to grab first. And he would take this one and he would, he would put his hands on it and he would pray over it, confessing all the sins of the people. And he would uh, cast all the sins of the people symbolically on this lamb. And after he finished praying, do you know what he'd do? Yeah, he slaughtered it. And he drained its blood. And you can imagine just the mess that would have made and even in his priestly garments, how that would have probably messed everything up that he was wearing. And he goes in and he goes into the holy place and they pour some of the blood on the mercy seat and prays for the people. And this was a vivid image to everyone of how serious God takes sin. That, that there's big consequence and, and even God's wrath for sin that has to be cared for, right? But then he would come out and there was still one more goat to go. And he would take this one. And again, at the front of the tent of meeting, he'd pray over it. He'd, he'd put all the sins of the people onto it. And then they had one guy who was appointed when the priest finished, when the high priest finished, to chase that goat out of town. And that goat was called uh, the scapegoat, Azazel. And they would run it out of town and it would symbolically carry all the sins of the people away, right? And if it tried to come back, that guy'd start throwing stones at it or doing something just to make sure it never came back, not to, not to kill it, but take it away, that it would never return. Theologically, that first one is propitiation. He takes God's wrath. The second one is expiation. He takes away sin. And what does Jesus do? See, all of this pointed to Jesus, didn't it? Well, Jesus is first that, that first lamb, that sacrificial lamb. He, he dies in our place. He sheds his blood for my sin and your sin. But then also, what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus coming to get baptized? Behold, the lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. And so each of these pointed forward to Jesus. Well, um, friends, all of this was pointing forward to Jesus. All of it was. We've been looking at, at Hebrews 7 this morning and here's what we read and what we've already read. That this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Not a covenant that is renewed on the day of atonement like this annually, but once and for all. See, the former priests, they were, we read this already, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They sinned and they died. But Jesus... He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He lives forever. And consequently then, he's able to save us to the uttermost, completely. Any who would draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, all of this pointed forward to Jesus. And the book of Hebrews really talks a lot then about Jesus as our high priest, as the ultimate perfect high priest to whom all the other high priests were ultimately shadows of and pointing towards. And Jesus does this in two ways, mediating for us on our behalf, which is another word for intercession, really. 
He's coming between us and God the Father, our sinfulness and God's holiness, and Jesus mediates between the two. And in fact, you know, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, there is only, there is one God and there is only one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Friends, the other priests we read, they were all sinful, they all died, but Jesus is our great high priest forever, forever. While the Old Testament high priest entered the Holy of Holies, Jesus actually entered the very presence of the Father on our behalf. While the high priest in the Old Testament would enter in uh, to God's manifest presence there, uh, Jesus actually is seated at the right hand of the Father in his presence And while the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and pray for the people, Jesus is at the right end of the hand of the Father continually interceding for you and I if you've trusted him. That's incredible. All of this pointed forward to Jesus' work. See, uh, here's what Hebrews tells us. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not just the tabernacle, not just the temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, mediating, interceding. Friends, I'd have no hope on my own before a perfect and holy God. But Jesus is my mediator. He goes before God for me, in my place to draw me near. And one way to think about Jesus' intercession then is simply this, that Jesus is praying for you. Friend, he's, he's praying for you right now. Uh, Louis Burkhoff was a theologian and in his systematic theology, he wrote, he said, you know, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our own prayer life. You know, uh, let's be honest, our prayer life stinks a lot of the time, doesn't it? But I wonder what difference would it make if you could hear Jesus in the next room praying for you? Would that encourage your heart? Because guess what? He is. He's interceding for you and for me. So take heart. I mean, there's few things that could calm us more than that. He's praying. You remember Romans 8.34, I read this earlier. Who can condemn? Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, he's the one who died. And not only that, he, he rose from the grave. He's at the right hand of God and he indeed is interceding for us. That's what he's up to. He's interceding for you and for me. It's what the risen Christ does. He's speaking up for us. He's speaking to the Father about you and I. He's praying for you. You know, we've quoted already in this series, the Puritan, Thomas Goodwin. He writes this. He says, uh, let me tell you, Jesus would still be preaching this day. He'd still be preaching today, but he had other business to do for you in heaven where he's now praying and interceding for you even when you're sinning. As on earth, we see that he did for the Jews when they were crucifying him. Remember the account of Jesus' crucifixion? They have him strapped down. They're putting nails through his wrists. 
And what does he say? He prays for those people, doesn't he? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And I think Goodwin has a good point here in that in the same way he prayed for them in that moment, he prays for you and I. Not only on our best day, but in our very worst moments. He's praying for you and interceding for you. He saves to the uttermost by interceding for us. And, you know, a closely related truth to that, to his intercession, is Jesus' advocacy for us. He's advocating for us. Do you know the difference between intercession and advocating? You could make an argument that they're kind of the same thing, but there's maybe a subtle difference. Interceding is when uh, an intercessor comes between two parties to represent one to the other and bring them together. Advocacy, advocacy takes that intercession to another level and, and Jesus steps back over to this side and says, he aligns himself with the one party. I'm with her, I'm with him, they're mine. And his advocacy, his intercession takes on a whole deeper level when we think of his advocacy for us. Uh, look at 1 John 2 with me. Uh, John was uh, the apostle John, uh, Jesus, earthly speaking, probably his best friend. John refers to Jesus to himself and his gospel as the one Jesus loved. And he writes this in one of his letters. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, uh, we should stop there for a minute because sometimes when we think of Jesus' heart towards us, his gentleness toward us, uh, we might uh, wrongly conclude that, okay, well, then I guess I'm just free to do whatever I want. Eh, not true, right? It's because of his heart for you and me that as we understand that and know that, it causes us to want to sin less and less because of his love for us. We need to put, any healthy Christian knows you, you need to put your sin to death, right? But if anyone does sin, because John knows we'll still sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's really important right there, the righteous piece. Because that means that he's never sinned, and there's no accusation that can stand against him. And what has he done? He's aligned himself with us. And so now when accusations come against me, Jesus is like, I mean, imagine, imagine the scene in, in heaven of Satan constantly accusing you before the father and Jesus just repeatedly going, objection, I covered that, I paid for that. And the father's like, sustained and then Satan comes up, oh, objection, or you know, he goes, another accusation. Jesus is like, objection, sustained. Objection, sustained. Jesus has paid it all. He's advocating for you and for me, even on our worst day. He's advocating for you, friend. We have an advocate, and, and the reason is he's the propitiation for our sins. It's paid for already. Propitiation, uh, that's a term you don't hear often other than in church theological term, biblical term. And for me, my simple mind, I've got to have kind of some little things to help me remember stuff. So for propitiation, I've shared this with you before, but I think propitiation, that Jesus took the full punch of God's wrath and satisfied it 
the punch that was aimed at me and my sin. The prophet Isaiah says that Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath for sin, even to the dregs, to the last drop. He took it all. Therefore, he can be our advocate. He's righteous and he can say, no, that's paid for. That's done. That, that, That accusation doesn't stand. See, he silences every accusation. Uh, I wanna read another passage here from Ortland's work. Uh, it's a little longer one, but I, I think it's helpful. Um, and he speaks of these things. He says, when you sin, first remember your legal standing before God because of the work of Christ. That's a little triangle piece, right? Remember what he's accomplished for you. It's finished. But also, Remember your advocate before God because of the heart of Christ. He rises up and defends your cause based on the merits of his own sufferings and death, the propitiation for our sin. Your salvation is not merely a matter of a saving formula, but of a saving person. When you sin, his strength of resolve rises all the higher. When his brothers and sisters fail and stumble, he advocates on their behalf because it is who he is. He cannot bear to leave us alone to fend for ourselves. Consider your own life, Ortland writes. How do you think about Jesus' attitude toward that dark pocket of your life that only you know? The overdependence on alcohol, that lost temper time and time again the shady business about your finances, the inveterate people-pleasing that looks to others like niceness, but which you know to be fear of man, the entrenched resentment that bursts out in behind-the-back accusations, the habitual use of pornography. Who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual blankness? Not who is he once you conquer that sin, but who is he in the midst of it? The Apostle John says that he stands up and defies all accusers. Uh, Bunyan writes this, another Puritan, he says, Satan had the first word, but Christ the last. Satan must be speechless after a plea of our advocate. Jesus is our advocate, our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. And in that sense, his advocacy is itself our conquering of it. Friends, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ who constantly pleads and intercedes and advocates for you. That's his work today. And he doesn't get tired of doing it. It flows from his heart because he loves you. Just like any good mom or dad would do the same for their kids and never tire of it. He loves you, friend. And and his advocacy silences every accusation. He's entered not into the holy places made with hands, but into the very presence of God on our behalf. I mean, who could bring any charges then against God's elect? It's Jesus who died. He he paid the penalty for sin. Not only that, but he rose from the grave. And so he lives now. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father and he is indeed interceding for you and me. 
There's no accusation that can stand. And the reality is you have no other defense than Jesus and neither do I. You know, um, in our fallen nature, we're pretty natural self-advocates. You notice that? I mean, we'll pretty quickly stand up for ourselves. It kind of flows out of us, self-exonerating, self-defending. I mean, you don't need to teach kids how to defend themselves if they've been caught misbehaving. I didn't do it. Or if it's not, I didn't do it. It's they made me do it. That's the only reason I did it. The only reason I hit him is because he was looking at me, right? Like that's little kids, but the reality is that's us too. And we can be self-advocating, but you know, what if we never needed to advocate for ourselves? What if you never had to advocate for yourself because someone else had decided to do so? What if that advocate knew how exhaustively and extensively fallen and sinful you were? They know all those places deep in your heart. And yet, even knowing that, one, they love you, and two, they can make a better defense for you than you ever could for yourself. Friend, that's what you have in Jesus Christ. You have an intercessor and an advocate who's more committed to your growth than you are. He loves you. He loves you. Imagine if that was true, you'd be free. Revelation uh, speaks of the enemy. It says, uh, the apostle John, again, writing of his vision, he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser, that's Satan. That's what his name means, accuser. The accuser of our brothers, he's been thrown down because of Jesus' work. The one who accuses them, accuses us day and night before our God. And we don't need to self-advocate before him. We simply need to do uh, what the people John sees did. If you've trusted him, they've conquered him. They've conquered the accuser, uh, not by their own self-advocacy, but by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, by their faith in him. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Friend, uh, he's our only defense. He's your only defense. You need an advocate. You need Jesus Christ, the righteous. He satisfied God's wrath. He redeemed you. He then can meet the accusations and he can thwart every one. He's your only defense. He didn't die and rise again on our behalf back then only to stand at a distance now, watching and waiting, wondering if you'll ever get it right and come to him. No, he continues to work on your behalf. He goes to the uttermost for you interceding for you and advocating for you when no one else will, even yourself. He loves you. Would you come to him? And might you be comforted by that truth, those of you who already have? Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work on the cross that's complete and finished and can never be added to or taken away from. But thank you too that in his heart for us, he he continues uh, to work on our behalf, interceding for us, drawing us near to you, 
advocating for us when we sin so that we might be free of our sin and of the things that beset us. Father, thanks for that comforting truth that he's praying for us even now. Lord, I pray uh, for my friends who trusted you that that would be a great comfort to their hearts today. And I pray too for those, Father, of my friends who haven't trusted you yet. I pray today they might. And uh, friend, if that's you, uh, all that work that we looked at that Jesus has accomplished, he, he did it for you too. And you can lay hold of that simply by faith, by, by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And then his death satisfies God's wrath for you. The Father declares you righteous. Jesus draws you near and sets you free. And not only that, but then you have an advocate and intercessor who's constantly praying for you. And you can do that by faith, just saying, Jesus, I, I need you. I believe. I come to you. Forgive me. He promises to do that. Father, thank you for Jesus. He is our only hope, and it's in his name we pray.